tonight, I really want to unpack um, a few things that are, are going to take us on a bit of a roller coaster. And uh, with any good roller coaster ride, there is the, the sort of the downside before you get to the, the upside. So let me just uh, give you a brief focus. Where I'm hoping to take this is, is that we're called to fearless faith in the face of uncertainty. You see, 2016 has been a turbulent year. Any way that you look at it, and as I've been praying about what to talk on tonight, it struck me that we do live in very uncertain times. You know, we've had the refugee uh, and migration crisis that's affected many countries across Europe. Politically, there have been great changes leading to uncertainty. There continues to be more changes that will be coming our way. And so it really impacted me as I was just thinking and reflecting, Lord, what is it you want me to say? The leadership in the Conservative Party has changed dramatically and very quickly, while the Labour Party is experiencing leadership challenge. And that's more certainty is being generated. And then, of course, there are other parties all scrambling to how do we, how do we focus, especially in the light of Brexit. We're not yet sure of the real implications of that. There's even the uncertainty in sport with the Olympics less than a, a week away. There's still rows going on about which athletes uh, should be banned and which shouldn't. And then there's the uncertainty of how many will be found cheating throughout the course of the Olympics. Of course, there's the Zika virus health scare stopping a number of golfers uh, playing in the Olympics. Crazy. Um, but it's still a genuine concern. And of course, that's now spread, spread to Florida. Of course, it's impacting other places too. And then we're watching unfold uh, the implications of that failed coup in Turkey, which is really close to home. So as I was thinking all these things through, I started to ponder... What are the major wars going on in the world at the moment that we don't really give a lot of attention to? They're mostly in Asia and Africa, and they're creating global uncertainty. There's wars in Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria, and the Sudan. You know, and they, there are more than 150,000 people killed each year um, throughout those countries when you put total them all together. It's a massive amount of people. Nottinghamshire is about 300,000, just over. So in, it's like half of Nottingham disappearing every year. You know, this has impacted a number of European cities at the moment. You know, there's, there's these increased random terrorist attacks and it just feels as if the level of uncertainty has just grown and grown over the last few months in particular. 
We do live increasingly in uncertain times. And for many of us, this is just all too overwhelming. It doesn't feel like there's anything we can do about it, and we have our own responsibilities, jobs, maybe families to raise, bills to pay, friends and close family needing our time and attention. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how are we to live in the face of all of this uncertainty? And I want to suggest tonight that it's fearless faith. That's what is the antidote to uncertainty. And the Bible tells us this. So we'll be looking at uh, the book of Hebrews. And again, you'll find that near the end of the Bible. It's one of the last eight books of the Bible, just after James. And it was written primarily to Jewish converts who were familiar with the Old Testament. And they were being tempted to revert back to Judaism. They were being tempted to um, Judaize the gospel, to try and bring in some of the, uh, the Jewish religious practices alongside with following Jesus. They were tempted to go back to their old ways. And the Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, could be called the book of better things. There are two Greek words that mean better and superior that occur many times in this, in this book, in this letter that was written uh, to these people, the Hebrews. And the theme is the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the revealer um, and as the mediator of God's grace. So Jesus is the saviour, the Messiah that they were waiting for. And it's only through him that we can make peace with God. Now Nick Page, in his book, um, the, the Bible book, A User's Guide, which John Bodley recommended last week, and I managed to get hold of one from good old Amazon. Now he says this, about Hebrews, the message to the Jewish Christians is clear. The old system has found fulfillment in the new. The rules and regulations have been superseded. The barriers torn down. The Old Testament prophets and the priests, Aaron, Moses, Melchizedek, Abraham, angels, Joshua, they all must bow to their superior, the one true high priest, Jesus Christ. Um, it's this book. It's, um, it's really valuable. It, it, it's sort of halfway house between the study Bible and, and the Bible. So it gives you all sorts of useful bits of information about the Bible. It, and if it would help you, I really would recommend that book to get you uh, stimulated to reading uh, your Bibles again. Now, these Jewish Christians, they were giving up a lot. They had a wealth of history and heritage. They had a magnificent temple, rich worship services, and a magnificently robed high priest. What did Christianity have at that time? What did it offer? There were no temples, no magnificently robed high priests, just a load of slaves, Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish, widows, orphans, 
and slightly manic ex-Pharisees like Paul and others. But there was no going back to the old Jewish uh, system for the early Jewish Christians. Jesus had changed everything and the church was born. It grew and it's changed the world and it's continuing to grow. You know, it's, I was looking up the figures and it's estimated that there's 2.2 billion Christians on the planet. Now, some of those may be nominal, but there's still people that would identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And that's of a, of a world population of about 7 billion. So it's around 32%. Nearly one in every three people on the planet you know, is a Christian. It doesn't feel like that in our culture, does it? It's fascinating that there's 1.6 billion Muslims, and that's about 23%. So there's about 55% of the world has got a, f- a faith in God and is, is practicing in some way or identifying. And yet we live in a culture that seems to be quite aggressively anti-faith. What are we focused on today? That would be my first question. You see, I found myself visiting the BBC News website on my mobile uh, phone a lot over the last month or so. You know, I want to know how is the, the pound doing against the euro and the dollar and um, I'm just fascinated by, well, you know, how is our economy? I studied economics at university, so I've, I've always got a slight interest. But it's one of the things I found myself doing f- first thing in the morning, competing for my time with the Lord and the Bible. I have to keep trying to say, no, no, I'll look at that afterwards. But it, it's there because of the uncertainty. It's there because I want, I want to know What's, what's happening? What's changing? I find that it's one of those things I do last thing at night as well, and a number of times throughout the day. I'm just fascinated. I'm not sure I've got the balance right, but it is a sign of uncertainty um, where there used to be more certainty. Now, what does the Bible tell us to focus on? Well, the Bible tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me just read them. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're going to be looking at chapter 11 in a minute, which will explain who the great cloud of witnesses are. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Some versions say the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What do these verses mean to you? How, just allow them to impact you. Do they raise any thoughts, any questions? 
we can just skip over them with, rather than allowing them to impact us. And there seems to be three things from these verses that we need to do before we fix our eyes on Jesus. The first one is to simplify our lives. Throw off everything that... Uh, and then the second one is to stop sinning because it so easily entangles us. So throwing off all the distractions that take our focus off Jesus and making sure that we are putting aside any sinful habits. And then the third thing, start living with a godly purpose. The race marked out for us. Now that will be different for, for many of us. And then it says, fix our eyes on Jesus. But why? Why are we asked to fix our eyes on Jesus? Because you might be just thinking, oh great, well, Tom's just encouraging us, have a quiet time, get the Bible out, fix our, my eyes on Jesus. That's not what this passage is saying. He, Jesus, is leading us away from dead religion and into a vibrant, personal, intimate relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. You see, there's more in this passage. Verse 3 says this, Consider him. Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's why we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. And in the face of uncertainty, that is often what can happen. We can grow weary and we can lose heart. There's one woman who is who was such an inspirational example of fixing her eyes on Jesus. And it was Mother Teresa. And uh, she led a simple life, which helped her be more sinless. She wasn't perfect. None of us are. No one would say that she was without sin. But by leading a simpler life, she was able to sin less. And she served the poorest of the poor for Jesus. And she didn't grow weary or lose heart. Her humility impacted the world. I'm sure she didn't expect that. And she had a handwritten note on her bedroom wall that I just want to read out. It will come up on the screens. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Be successful anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What, what you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. 
the good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have. It may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it's between you and God. It, was, it never was between you and them anyway. It's fascinating. You know that there are more than 4,500 uh, 4, nuns who were part of this movement, Sisters of Mercy, who were serving the poorest of the poor uh, in 133 countries across the world. That was the impact of one life following Jesus. It's incredible. If you were to write a note to put on your bedroom wall, what would it say? Would it be inspirational? Would it be fearless? Or would it be cautious and faint-hearted? You see, as God's children, what can we expect in this world? And the writer of Hebrews has more to say to us about that, which we probably don't really want to hear. So, Hebrews 12, 4 to 7. I'm going to read these verses out. And then 11 to 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as the father addresses his son, his daughter? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. In, here's the punchline. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? You see, on the whole, in the culture that we live in, there's a completely different message that we pick up. It's more avoid hardship, avoid discipline, seek entertainment, seek pleasure, that's where you'll find fulfillment, the culture that we live in wants to tell us. Look after yourself. Don't worry about other people. But God is wanting us to understand that we grow and develop a deeper relationship with him through hardship. Discipline is not punishment, it's training. And have you noticed how your prayer life just becomes more vibrant and urgent when we face struggles. I know that's true for me. When in the comfort of everything just going well, it's amazing how lukewarm we can become really quickly. Now, you may be facing a serious struggle right now. It may be that there's a, a loved one who's ill, or you may be facing a financial crisis. It may be that you've come to a crossroads and you have to make an important decision and you're really not sure what to do. Or it could be that there's a close relationship um, that's broken down or is breaking down. And again, 
there's uncertainty generated in all of this. And I want to encourage you to, if these things or similar things are, are really plaguing you, are really distracting you from God, taking up your energy, your focus, try to see these as an, an invitation to fix our eyes on Jesus because that's what they are. Hardship is an opportunity for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Are we ready for God's discipline, God's training? Verse 11 and 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. I found that verse 12 odd, and I nearly left it out. And then I started to think about it. Because the challenge we face is one of our attitudes. Too often we can find ourselves saying, I cannot. It's just too much. I'm no good at that. And verse 12 is, is encouraging us, just do something. Strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Now, three years ago, I was two stone heavier than I am now. Um, I had three meals a day and snacks in between because otherwise I knew that I would just starve. It really was a ridiculous mindset and attitude I'd got into. And I was puzzled why weight was going on and not coming off. You know, I'd do two or three press-ups and give up in the morning or something, you know, and, and feel like I'd really had a go. But it was about my attitude. My attitude was poor and undisciplined. And God really challenged me, and I chose to strengthen my feeble arms and weak knees. I had that sense that if I wanted to see a change, I knew that it wasn't going to happen by me doing nothing. I had to start somewhere. So I fixed my eyes on Jesus, and I started to get into shape physically. I really wanted more self-discipline in my life. I was struggling in lots of ways. And as I, as I started to engage with physical activity, I started to develop a better mental attitude and a better mo emotional attitude. And I found that I started to become more disciplined. It's like the, the fruit of the Spirit as I was doing this, seeking God. And I started to grow spiritually too. And I just would want to lay down that challenge. If you have got that sense that you're struggling with discipline, self-discipline, then do something. Don't have the attitude that, oh, I can't. Oh, I've tried. It's too much. Start somewhere. Make yourself accountable. Um, and I want to ask the question, what is it that Jesus has been speaking to you about? Because it might not be a physical thing. It may be some other attitude that you have. Some other sin that you just feel, I can't let that go. I can't, can't give that away. And I want to ask you, if you've got a recurring sort of bad habit or something that keeps preventing you from fixing your eyes on Jesus, what have you done about it? Are you, are you still hiding it? 
thinking that no one would understand because that's just a lie from the enemy. So the second point I want to focus on, it's another question. What can we expect to endure because of our faith in Jesus? And often it's waiting and then there's times of trouble. And that may not sound like good news, but that's often how God tests out whether we're really serious about fixing our eyes on him. There'll be occasional successes along the way, but we do need to learn to wait on the Lord, to inquire of him, to seek him out, rather than just expect quick answers and then move on. One of the themes that we've embraced this year from the vision talk that John did was to go deeper with God. And we should not be surprised if that means facing challenging circumstances or situations because that's how God draws us into a deeper relationship with him as we become more dependent on him rather than on ourselves. Hebrews 11. Now this chapter, it's, a, it's, it's faith in action and it really is a hall of fame of, of people in the Old Testament who live by faith. And these are the witnesses that that are watching on. Let me read verses 1 to 3. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen uh, sorry was not made out of what was visible. And then we get verses 4 to 12 that tell us about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, and how they lived by faith, and how God made promises to them, and the story of what happened. And then in the middle of this, we get this golden nugget of a verse, which I love. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, the ball's in our court. Are we going to earnestly seek God? If you want a deeper relationship with God, you've got to prioritize earnestly seeking him, putting some time into it. You can't get fit without putting time and energy into it. You can't have a deeper relationship with God without investing time and energy. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. You see, they had vision. God had given them Promises that generated a vision of what was to come. And they lived in the light of that vision and in the light of those promises from God, even though they were not all fulfilled in their lifetime. Verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
You see, and then, and I'm really hoping that this will stimulate you reading, you know, uh, this chapter 11 and 12 in Hebrews over this coming week. That's a real uh, challenge and an invitation. Do read it. I'd, I'd love to know any thoughts you've had on it. You see, we then get a fascinating list as it goes on of how the ancients lived by faith. And it's inspirational, generation after generation. These people were not perfect, but they pleased God by living um, by faith. I want to just focus on the last four verses. And this is more sobering because some of them paid a really heavy price for living by faith. There were others, verse 35, who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for them, for, for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Just stop and think about that for a moment. What has your faith cost you? Is it a little inconvenience? You know, do, we, do people actually know that you're a Christian where you work or live? Or, you know, I know it's a challenge, but in the light of the, some of these people, they were radical. I just want to play a little video clip. It's four minutes long. By, it, it's from um, a DVD box set by Simon Gillibo, uh, who's a missionary out in Burundi. Let's just watch this together. So I recounted how the ten virgins were invited to the wedding banquet. And five were ready, whilst five just weren't ready. And then the wedding party was late, but when they did arrive, the five that were ready were invited in, and it was a great party. But those five who were late had to rush off and buy some more oil, and when they finally arrived back, they banged on the door, which was shut by now, and they heard the most horrifying words you could possibly hear. I tell you the truth, I don't know you. The message was straightforward. There were three points. Jesus is coming. Nobody knows when. Are you ready? And it's easy to dance around or even ignore altogether the subject of hell, as many followers of Jesus do. But actually, Jesus Christ himself didn't have a problem with speaking about it. 
He was upfront in many settings because he knew it was of critical importance. So I just went ahead and asked, who wants to be ready? gospel is the greatest news in the world, but it only becomes good news once we have dealt with the bad news, and maybe you can only realise how good the good news is in light of how bad the bad news is. The concept of hell is so desperately bleak that we must be willing to be broken by it. I know that's really sobering, but it's true. And this is what is happening in persecuted countries across the world, not just Burundi. And in the light of what Jesus did, you know, we, we just sort of skipped across the fact that he, he died scorning the shame. But you know, when you stop and think about how he died, it was a gruesome death. And it wasn't just the pain that he went through so that we could have uh, forgiveness of our sins. He also went through the shame. And we often don't think about that either. The shame that he uh, endured so that we could have uh, new life. And there's a real... Um, challenge in all of this for us to be fearless and faithful in sharing our faith with our family, friends, with others. 
And I think God wants us to learn to be more bold. And this all brings me now to my last point, which is here's the uplift. This is the uplifting um, final point, the good news. What will we choose to be today? That's my question. Fearful or joyful followers of Jesus? And the good news is that we can choose to be joyful. There is a lot to be joyful about. Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. Verse 21. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That was the Old Testament faith. That's how they encountered God in the Old Testament, the old religious way. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Our names as followers of Jesus are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new agreement, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, verse 28, the last verse I want to mention. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom that we're part of cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. I, I really believe that the daily decisions we make are affected by our state of mind. And that's affected by our attitudes. If we are fearful, we will make decisions that will reflect that fear. We will risk less and tend to be cautious in the face of uncertainty. We're trying to avoid failure. And I think God would say, fail anyway. You're going to fail lots in lots of ways. It doesn't matter. What matters is faith. It's faith that pleases God, not success. If we are more joyful, we will make decisions that reflect that joy, reflect that optimism. Now, we will probably make more mistakes. I make loads. And we'll experience more failures. That's a book I could write. Failure. How I failed over the last 57 years. Shocking. It, it will go on and on. But we will feel more fully alive. You know, they did a survey of people in their 70s and 80s. And 75% of them, three quarters of them, when asked if they had any regrets, they mentioned that they wished they'd taken more risks in their life. Now let me end with a personal story. Recently I've been reading a little book by uh, Matt Redman, Face Down. It's only a short book, but it's just full. Well, it's dripping with wisdom and helpful insights about worship, such as um, this. Worship thrives on wonder. We need mystery to really be able to worship well. If we understood everything, it would actually hinder our worship. So, 
I woke up early this morning, 6.45. The dog normally wants a walk at that point. You know, I was, and I was, I was in a mild panic because I was really grappling with how do I finish this talk? So I went down to the kitchen and switched on the kettle. Coffee's always a great way to help when you're in the face of panic, I find, in the mornings. And I thought, oh, shall I make God a cup of tea? Now, that might sound strange to you. It sounded strange to my kids over the years. They've always been puzzled why God doesn't drink the tea. Um, but it's not strange to me. You know, over the years, I occasionally find myself just prompted to make Jesus a cuppa, and it really helps me engage with God as I, as I sort of pray and read the Bible. Today, however, was different. It was very different. It was as if God whispered into my mind's ear, you can make all three of us a cup of Tom. It really just struck me. And I don't know if you've experienced it, but when you start to realize God's in the room, you know, you face a choice. Do you just become fearful and withdraw? Or do you just joyfully embrace that, his presence? And I was so desperate, I needed to embrace his presence. But it was a joyful thing. You know, so I did. I made three cups of tea. I put them around the kitchen table. Made my coffee. Sat down with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it was a really profound time. And I just was so humbled that God would just help me out in that very intimate, personal way. And then I went next door and I just lay on the floor face down, completely overcome. I can feel that stirring. I feel changed. It's like something was unlocked. My heart was softened again. And I just was worshipping God in wonder. Let me read that last verse again. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. I think that's what God is calling us into. If we can worship him with reverence and awe, We'll know his presence more. He'll fill us. And we'll be able to face the uncertainty fearlessly in faith.